0: These books and are the authors trust- trustworthy? Right. Are these accounts historically accurate? And when were they written? How were they chosen to be included in the New Testament? And who chose them? So, if you're looking for answers to those types of questions, folks, tune in. Stay with us for the for the next hour, and uh, we're going to give you some uh, solid answers on all of that, so that you can feel a whole lot more comfortable with the re- reliability of the uh, New Testament Scriptures. So,
1: And if you'd like to call in, the call-in line is 609-398-1020 if you have questions or comments about uh, the New Testament, where it came from. Well, it does claim to have authority over us. The New Testament claims authority over you, even if you don't believe in it. It claims that it's the Word of God and that it's the truth. So it's fair to ask, where did it come from?
0: You know, if you want to go all the way back to the um, uh, 3rd century AD, um, the councils of Hippo, which was AD 393, and the council of Carthage, AD 397, mention the official list that we all ascribe to as the canon or the collection of letters and or books of the New Testament.
1: Right. That's that's where we got the official uh, list. So, how did they come? How did it come... That they said, these are the books of the Bible and no other books. That's the question we're going to answer. And we're going to do that by going backward through time. We'll look uh, back through time just as they would have when they were at the council deciding, should this book go in the Bible or not? What did they see when they looked back through time Mm -hmm. to give them the answer to that question. Well,
0: going back in time, Keith, one of the primary um, uh, inclusion points was that it had to be written during the Apostolic Age. That's right. That is, while the apostles were actually on the earth, they were still alive. Obviously, uh, all of the apostles an untimely death uh, and were uh, basically uh, executed, uh, except for John. And John actually died in A.D. 90. Mm -hmm. So... All of the books had to have been written prior to John's death,
1: right? That exactly. So, so that was one of the criteria. Now, the we have to point out that they had a list of criteria. They had um, rules basically that the books had to follow. It wasn't that a bunch of bishops got together and voted, you know, uh, which book is most popular. You know, let's you know pick the uh, twenty-seven most popular. Uh, Books. That's not how it was. They uh, had criteria that they had developed and had been developed over time, and one of them was what you just mentioned about the apostolic age. Uh, Another one was that it had to be written by an apostle or an apostle's associate. Now, the only exception that they made to that was the books of James and Jude, because they were both brothers of Jesus.
0: You know, the interesting thing is, Keith, that... James and Jude, while Christ was actually in his ministry, were not believers. They weren't really followers of Jesus. But it was after Jesus' death and his resurrection and his walking on the earth that they actually became believers, okay? They became followers of Christ after his death, burial, and resurrection. And obviously they have uh, chapters devoted uh, uh, to the Bible written by them. But I find it very curious that uh, that they weren't believers while Christ was actually in his active ministry. It wasn't until his death right, and, and resurrection.
1: That's right. And uh, Scripture says that Jesus appeared uh, to his brother James. And then later we learn that James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So uh, clearly uh, he was profoundly affected by seeing his dead brother risen from the dead.
0: Right. So one of the major criteria, then, is that it had to be written during the apostolic age by an apostle himself or by an apostle's associate, uh, and the two exceptions were James and Jude. Now, the second major uh, uh, criterion was that they have to have been in general acceptance and continual usage by the church going all the way back uh, to uh, the earliest church, okay? Um Furthermore, they have to be in agreement and um, cohere, cohesive with other scriptures. So it has to be relatively undisputed uh, as to its uh, authority and um, and its acceptance. The Probably the most important one, though, Keith, is the inspiration part right. of these uh, letters and or documents.
1: Yeah, there had to be... a a sense that there was a self-evidenced quality. That's the best way to put it, I think. There had to be reason to think that this was inspired. So it was partly the quality. If there was something that they thought maybe might have been written, at least claimed to be written by an apostle, but it lacked quality, it was poorly written, um, didn't seem to match things with other books, then it would have been rejected.
0: You know, part of the inspiration um, thing here was that it was powerful. It had yes. to be able to transform lives, and it it set... It
1: would be inspiring also.
0: Exactly. Right. And, and this is what really set the books, the canon books, mm-hmm. apart from all the other books.
1: That's right. That's right, because there were other books that some churches were using for teaching purposes. Um so these 27 then became what was called the canon. Now, this is a, a word that means measure or rule. And the point was that this every all the teaching had to adhere or obey this rule. So even um, in 390s, in, the, in AD 390, you had sola scriptura. You had that. All teaching had to obey the Bible because uh, of the conviction that you had to obey the teaching of the apostles.
0: And the teachings of Christ. Obviously, the apostles recorded what Christ preached, what Christ taught, all of his parables, and the right meanings that he was uh, referencing directly when he was in his active ministry. You know, one of the things that I've always said to uh, to people— Uh, when it comes to any document that's written with uh, religious overtones, you can ask this question, is it from man or is it from God? And uh, that's one of the things that the canon does to differentiate um, uh, the books, uh, the various books, including, you know, the Apocrypha and other books that were not included in the original canon. You know, is it inspired by God? Is it inspired by the Holy Spirit? Or was it written by a man about men? Uh, Many of the books were not included in canon, uh, that were written by the Apostles, so they had the authority of, of, of the Apostle, but it was about the Apostle's life, and it wasn't about Jesus or his teachings. So it had to be about Jesus, it had to be inspired, and had to have the power to transform lives. And this is really what set uh, uh, the canon, uh, books and letters, apart from all the other books and the body of literature that uh, surfaced during the first and second centuries uh, uh, after Christ's uh, official uh, ministry. You know, so if, if you go back really in time, uh, we can go back to Athanasius in A.D. 367. He was the uh, Bishop of Alexandria, and he actually published the oldest list that contained all 27 books. That's right. And only those 27 books. That's right. You know, so... so
1: um, and Eusebius uh, in A.D. 325. Now, Eusebius was a historian, a church historian, So he wrote about the information, about the origin of the books. Where did the books come from, who wrote them, how were they passed down? So he also had a list that included um, most of the books of the Bible, Uh, and he categorized them in uh, a very specific way. He had a a list that he called the canonical, Uh, then he had a list that was widely accepted, then he had a list of rejected books that historically, up to that point, had been rejected. And then he had a list of heretical. So for canonical, he had the four Gospels. He had the book of Acts. He had all of Paul's letters and Hebrews. He had First John, First Peter, Revelation. So, so essentially, almost the entire book at that point was considered canonical. Um, then he mentions that under widely accepted was James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 John, and 3 John.
0: You know, his, his work, Keith, is very, very historically important here because he was actually uh, spurred on by uh, Emperor Constantine. And as you remember, folks, he was the first Roman emperor to embrace Christianity and to eliminate the Roman gods. And so with his backing then, Eusebius was able to uh, get really into the uh, the records, the documents, and the libraries Uh, that housed all of these important writings, the library in Caesarea Maritima, as well as in Jerusalem, where they had all of the church documents written by the church fathers going back to the apostles.
1: So he could actually research everything.
0: From primary documents. That's right.
1: That's right. So now, uh, he said there were some that were rejected by the church. So these were books that were circulating, but people recognized them as forgeries and fakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these were Acts of Paul, Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermas, uh, Didach, and uh, The Apocalypse of Peter. Now the Didache or Didache, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, uh, was a book that was used for teaching, and it was somebody had written it and kind of compiled the teachings of the Apostles. And it was used as a um, like a Sunday school curriculum, you know, it, it was a it was a teaching uh, document. So even though it was it accurately reflected the writings of the apostles, it itself had not been written by an apostle, and it had been written after the apostolic age. So even though this was a very useful book, it was still rejected as being uh, included in. the uh, the Bible for inspirational purposes. Hmm. So then under heretical, there were many, he only mentions a few, Uh, the Gospel of Thomas that you hear so much about today, Uh, the Gospels of Peter, the Gospel of Matthias, uh, the Acts of Andrew, the Acts of John, all of these were known to be what they would call pseudopigraphal, which just means uh, a forgery. was put under those apostles' names, but it wasn't really written by those apostles. Yeah,
0: or there were work that were claiming to document the life of an apostle. Uh, But remember, if it wasn't written about Jesus, and if it wasn't quoting Jesus per se, or the acts of the Holy Spirit, then it was not considered canonical or canon, part of the canon. Uh, So it had to be about um, uh, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the acts of the Holy Spirit— uh, teachings of Jesus directly uh, by eyewitness accounts and, and by apostles, but it couldn't couldn't be about the man himself, the apostle himself. Right. So that was another uh, thing that they used to uh, eliminate uh, some of the uh, other writings.
1: Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis.
1: And you can call us at 609-398-1020. Well, as we go back in time now, we're looking at where did the Bible come from, and we've gotten up to Eusebius in 325. Let's go back to around the year 230. We have a, one of the church fathers whose name was Origen. Now, he quoted from the New—he wrote a lot of letters, and he quoted from the New Testament books about 18,000 times. Mm. Okay, so he is a ripe source of information about what was considered uh, important and biblical in those days. He quotes from the Gospels, Acts, the letters of Paul, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelation. And he wrote that those were all universally accepted. So as far back as 2.30, those are all universally accepted. And then the other six, that just leaves out six books from the New Testament. And he wrote that those were all widely accepted. So, so now we've gone back to 230 and we see that there's a lot of evidence that the New Testament is uh, still considered um, acceptable and use, usable as inspired by the the Holy Spirit.
0: You know, if you, if you go even further back, Keith, uh, in the year 200 A.D., Tertullian quoted the New Testament almost 7,000 times, and he quoted from 23 books. And if you go back even further, uh The Church Fathers, going back to A.D. 95, up to and including A.D. 325, the Church Fathers, in historical library documents, quoted the New Testament over 36,000 times, and they quoted all but 11 verses.
1: Yeah, so so if you took the time period of the Church Fathers, and this is prior to the Bible being declared uh, the canon, the canonicity of the Bible, if you took their writings you could make your own New Testament. Say all of the manuscripts got destroyed. Then you could still make the Bible by taking the quotes from the Church Fathers. That's an amazing fact. Except for Except 11, for 11 verses. verses. That is that is a phenomenal yeah. So um, historically, statistic. we know very clearly what the New Testament was and uh, what was widely accepted. Yeah. So, um, now there was a... A uh, list also uh, in now we're back to around the year between the years 180 to 200 uh, called the Muratorian Canon. Okay, now this is the oldest known list of books that we have. So there, prior to that, we don't have an actual list where somebody wrote out a list of what books were in circulation in the churches. But this list, at least has the Gospels, it has Acts, it has the letters of Paul, it has the book of Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. So, again, we're going now uh, prior to the year 200, so we're in the 2nd century, late 2nd century, and we have a list of books that's almost identical to what we have in the New Testament now.
0: Uh, yeah. Keith, I wanted to make uh, a real quick uh, comment about uh, the word canon again, mm-hmm. because it's something that's being thrown back and forth um, uh, during our discussion. But the first time the word canon was actually used was in A.D. 353, and that was by Athanasius. Okay, remember he was the bishop of uh, Alexandria. Right. And uh, uh, prior to that, it was just a compilation of lists, or a compilation of letters, or books, or uh, other materials. But the word canon didn't come around until 353 A.D. And again, remember, the canon are those books that preserve the teachings of the apostles who are personally commissioned by Jesus himself to spread the the teachings of Jesus and the good news. Right.
1: Now, uh, let's go back to A.D. 115. Okay, now we've got Ignatius who referred to the Gospels as authoritative. Now, by that time, the four Gospels had been combined and bound together. So back then, you had uh, separate books. You had the Gospels as one collection of books, and they would have been bound in those days they called it a codex. So instead of scrolls, they were taken from scrolls and put into book form called a codex. So the Gospels were one set uh, then Paul's letters had been collected, and those were a separate set of writings. And, in, in fact, they remained a separate set of writings for quite some time, even after the list, the canon list. Um, so you you hear historically of people uh, um, who had the book that was Paul's writers, Paul's letters. Mm. Um, and then there was a third uh, codex, a combination of Acts, Peter, James, John, and Jude, and those were collected into a separate book also. So uh, now, uh, Polycarp. Um, now we now let's go back even further to around the year 100. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is just right after the apostles have died, the last apostle. Um, Polycarp was a uh, disciple of the Apostle John, and uh, an apostle, a disciple of his uh, was a man named Irenaeus, and he records um, what his teacher Polycarp, who was taught by the Apostle John, said about the uh, writing of the Bible, the Gospels. So here's a quote from Irenaeus. He says, Matthew published his gospel among the Hebrews in their own language, while Peter and Paul were preaching and founding the church in Rome. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, also transmitted to us in writing those things which Peter had preached, and Luke, the attendant of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel which Paul had declared, afterwards John the disciple of the Lord who also reclined on his bosom published his gospel while staying at Ephesus in Asia so there's a quote from Polycarp now we're and we're just two generations away from the Apostles themselves Polycarp again his teacher was Irenaeus I'm sorry um, no actually that is Polycarp and Polycarp was taught um, directly from uh from John. Hmm.
0: So. You know, Keith, I, I have another historical um, 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 comment written by Papias on the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this uh, between 100 and 107 AD. And um, uh, Eusebius actually records the writings of Papias as a hearer of John, meaning that he followed John and basically wrote down in lecture format what John was saying. Mm-hmm. But this is, this is what he has to say Mark having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not indeed in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourse, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some things as he remembered them, for he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he has heard, and not to state any of them falsely. So then Matthew wrote the oracles in the Hebrew language, and everyone interpreted them as he was able.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great quote. So, um, And that was uh, just about the year 100 from uh, Papias, uh, who was a hearer or a direct... Uh, listener, probably somebody who attended his church services, mm. uh, the Apostle John. Um, now, let's go back even further. There was Clement of Rome, who was an early church father, and he wrote around the year 95. So now we're in the first century, and he quotes from ten books of the New Testament. So he he also said that. Uh, Mark wrote Peter's teachings, so the book of Mark was about uh, the teachings of Peter as what happened, uh, the story of Jesus, uh, and that he wrote that Peter approved it. So there's a so there's a little bit of uh, uh, contradiction there. It looks like Papias says that that um, Mark was written after Peter died, but Clement, who's before Papias, says that. Uh, Mark wrote them while Peter was still alive and that that he saw them and proved of them, Mm. okay? So that's going back to circa 95.
0: Okay. Now, there's another little, um, uh, not not a real controversy because it's really not controversial, but the question from a historicity point of view, which of the Gospels came first, Matthew or Mark? And what we're going to try to do is tease this out a little bit and try to figure out uh, which one came first. Not that it really matters in the bigger picture, right. but you know, it's like who who wants to get credit for having the first gospel? You That's know, right. so which came first? Uh, let's talk a little bit about Matthew first. Uh, Matthew wasn't an apostle, and he wrote he wrote to the Jews. Um, he probably relied on Mark's manuscript, and this is just looking at the bigger picture and looking at the facts and 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 figures uh, as far as what was recorded. Um, He writes his gospel in a very, very strong ancient tradition, and his gospel is a little bit more extensive and detailed than Mark's. Okay, he has Polycarp and Papias and Clement supporting him in his documents and his writings. That he wrote first. That he wrote first, right. right? And then, of course, you you want to tell us about Mark and, and how it fits into the big picture?
1: Well, Mark, if you go, and when I did my master's degree, Mark was... Uh, we were taught that Mark was written first, and so the majority of the scholarship, the scholarship in New Testament, uh, uh, scholars say that Mark was written first, and for a couple of reasons. One is that um, out of 661 verses in Mark, there 606 of them are found in Matthew. Okay, so it appears that that Matthew was looking at uh, Mark stuff. Um, Matthew's treatments of certain situations are a little longer and more detailed, as if Matthew was kind of filling out, you know, maybe Mark knew about a certain situation because he'd heard it from Peter, so he wrote about that particular thing that Peter had told him about. And then Matthew, who was there, an eyewitness, wrote in more detail and added some additional, made those situations a little longer narrative. Also, the oldest fragments of Matthew are not in Hebrew. Now, remember that we had Polycarp, Papias, and Clement saying that Matthew wrote first, and they said he wrote in Hebrew. Well, we don't have any of those documents. We don't have any manuscripts. There's no fragments that are in Hebrew. So the scholars are a little uh, critical, a little um, inclined to disbelieve that part, and believe that Mark uh, was written first. So there, there now is though a solution to this. the The scholars say that there was a document called Q. Have you heard of this, Mike? There's this document called Q because um, Mark and Luke look like they shared information from another source okay so and there's reasons there's um, reasons in the way the wording is and things that it looks like Mark and Luke shared from a primary source and then we have Matthew that looks like he shares from Mark now if you put all of the information that we have the that there appears to be this beginning source which they call Q and it's because the Greek word for source starts with a Q um, We have that Matthew appears to have copied from Mark, but we also have that the uh, early Church Fathers said that Matthew wrote first. So how is that possible? If you work it all out, it turns out it looks like Matthew in Hebrew is Q, okay? Then Matthew later wrote out the book of Matthew in Greek, because all the documents that we have of Matthew are in Greek. So that explains the mystery of Q. And, and, you know, sometimes uh, people who are critical of the Bible will uh, attack uh, the authority of the Bible because they'll say, well, there was this document Q, and we don't have any of it, and, you know, this is the true source of the Bible. Well, if you look at the evidence, it appears that Matthew is Q. Matthew is, in Hebrew, is Q. And both, remember, Luke said that he... Very carefully investigated the uh, uh, what happened. So you have Luke using Q, you have Mark uh, using Q, and then you have Matthew rewriting in Greek and expanding on different things and and following the format of Mark. So uh, so that's
0: pretty. That's actually fascinating. Isn't that terrific? I I had not heard of Q before, Uh but I I find that very fascinating. So, folks, not to be confused, you know, so it's the gospel according to whom. Uh, You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis.
1: And I'm Keith Kendricks. We're talking
0: about the New Testament, its reliability, and its veracity.
1: If you'd you'd like to jump in, uh, you can join us at 609-398-1020.
0: Okay, so we're talking about the Gospels according to whom. You know, you have Matthew, who appears to be an obscure apostle, and the Q author. Right. And then you have Mark, who wasn't an apostle. However, he was a hearer of Peter. Right. So he was basically a disciple of Peter, who wrote down everything that Peter taught and said. And then you have Luke, who was a Greek physician. He wasn't even a, a Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a Greek physician, an investigator, a questioner, who used all of the primary source documents to write his gospel. And by the way, folks, it is the most complete gospel. And I have to say that when I got saved, since I am a Greek physician, uh, Luke was actually the first book that I read in the Bible. Um, so anyway, uh, Luke was the attendant, the primary attendant of Paul. Right. So he got to know Paul in a very, very personal way and uh, was taught uh, basically one-on-one. So. Uh, he is uh, also included in the canon because of his direct relationship as a, uh, an attendant of Paul. And, of course, then you have John, who was the, uh, the prominent apostle, the apostle that Jesus loved, uh, who um, had obviously, obviously a uh, direct uh, link and direct access to Jesus at any time. And he was also the apostle that, uh, that wrote the last of the four Gospels around circa 90 A.D., just before his death. Right. So when you put it all together, what does
1: it all mean? Well, you've got these anonymous books, because even though we know who wrote them now, they don't say that in the book. You know, the the titles, uh, Gospel According to Matthew, that was added later. In the actual text, uh, it doesn't say that it's the Gospel of Matthew, we just know that historically because people wrote it down, this book was written by Matthew. So these are essentially anonymous books. And yet, they were able to make it into the canon. They were able to make it into the Bible because they were so authoritative. They were definitely authoritative. Yet, on the other hand, there were all these apocryphal books and pseudepigrapha, which we you know, said is uh, forgeries. Those did claim authorship. See, they claimed auth- authorship of prominent uh, people. You know, Paul and Peter uh, to try to get acceptance, but they were clearly seen as not authoritative. They came much later, they were written uh, far too late to have been actual manuscripts written by the people they claimed to be. Um, they were uh, supporting obscure cults uh, and had obviously been written uh, to try to influence. The church by getting uh, cult-like uh, teachings into the church. So, so here you have this interesting uh, juxtaposition where you've got the books that were anonymous but were authoritative; those become the Bible. The books that claimed to be, uh, you know, written by apostles those actually were seen to be not authoritative and were not included.
0: Again, these books were all written by apostles or disciples of the apostles uh, about the teachings of Christ um, as ambassadors of Christ, and really not about themselves. So it set set them apart because they were writing about Christ in a firsthand uh, way, uh, as opposed to the the forgeries or the, the pseudepigraphal ones that were writing about themselves. Right. And that's why they were not in, uh, included in canon, not to mention the fact that they weren't inspirational. Right. Uh, they didn't have um, uh, the power to transform lives.
1: So let's look now. Let's turn to the dating of the Gospels. How when? How do we know what year the Gospels were written in? So let's take a look at John first because we're going to work backward through time again. Well, Clement, the early church father, tells us that John wrote his Gospel last. And there's a couple of clues uh, in the Gospel of John that tell us about when it was written. One thing is that John mentions existing landmarks in Jerusalem that were later destroyed. And he doesn't write that they were destroyed, and he writes as if you could go there today and find this landmark, well, it's not there anymore, because Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, by the Romans, and the temple was destroyed, and much of the city was completely decimated. So when uh, uh, John writes about certain things, they're gone. If he had written about them after A.D. 70, it wouldn't have made any sense. You know, he talks about, and then we were we standing by the Lamb's Gate. Well, there is no Lamb's Gate. H- how's anybody going to know what he was talking about? Mm. So, um, so uh, also, there's no mention about the destruction of Jerusalem. Even though John lived past that destruction, he doesn't write about it in the Gospel of John. And it was something that Jesus had predicted. So there's a prediction made by Jesus that the temple and the city would be destroyed. It does happen. John sees that, yet he doesn't mention that this is a fulfilled prophecy Jesus, So it's very unlikely that the book of John was written after A.D. 70.
0: I remember Clement was the bishop of Rome, and uh, he quotes from many of the original scripture documents in, in uh, A.D. 95. Right. So, um, so he, you, he had direct access not only to the uh, the information content, but also probably had a pretty good recollection of, of the city before it was destroyed.
1: Sure, and he would have been a, a, alive when John wrote uh, the Gospel. So right. he would have known when it began to be circulated in the churches, because copies would have made it up to Rome. So so he would have known all about that. and, and uh, So that's why there's very, very strong evidence to believe that it was written before AD uh, 70, probably in the mid to late 60s.
0: All right. The, the next thing we're going to do, Keith, is talk about uh, my favorite uh, Gospel book, uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Again, uh, Luke was a uh, Greek physician, and he more than likely wrote his gospel sometime in the early uh, A.D. 60s, okay? Um, Basically, the the two books that Luke is given um, credit for authoring are the Book of Acts Mm -hmm. as well as the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he probably wrote this as a two-volume set. Remember, the book of Acts is really the acts of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So Luke actually documents really what happened in the early church and the power of the Holy Spirit that was poured out on those people who who believed um, in uh, Jesus as the uh, risen Savior. So um, he wrote these as a two-volume set, and really, if you look at the the content of those two, two-volume sets, it would have taken up roughly uh, two 35-foot scrolls. So right. if you have a 35-foot scroll rolled out on the floor, you'd have to roll out another one to have that two-volume set. And uh, it was a bestseller in those days, I'm sure. Now I'm only kidding. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Acts also ends with Paul in prison. Now, this is actually before Paul was executed. So the martyrdom of Paul happened sometime between A.D. 64 and 67. There's always that three-year range that uh, that we give because of the Discrepancy in the Hebrew calendar and the uh, the the, uh, Christian calendar, Uh, so somewhere, let's say A.D. 65, 66, 67, Paul was martyred, and so more than likely Luke wrote his two-volume set prior to the execution of Paul. Yeah, because there's no mention of the execution in any of his writings. And remember, Paul was beheaded beheaded by by Caesar Nero. sometime during that time frame between 62 and 65 A.D. Right. So we we can confidently say that this two-volume set was more than likely written during the early 60s, A.D. 60, uh, by Luke.
1: Right. So you've got the Gospel of Luke and Acts being written in the 60s. Then, prior to that, it looks like we have the Gospel of Mark. Now, um, several reasons for thinking of that. We've got Luke... We believe Luke may have used Mark as a as a guiding document. That that was one of the sources that he used, um, and so you have that would put the writing of Luke around sixty to sixty-two, and then probably Acts came shortly after that. Um, there's some tradition that says that Peter writings of Mark's gospel. Well, uh, Peter we believe died also in the. Um, persecution by Nero, so that puts his death somewhere around A.D. 64, 65, Um, and so you've got that, the Book of Mark being prior to that, so again, early 60s probably for the Book of Mark. Then, the first book, Gospel of Matthew, okay? Now, again, we mentioned what about the modern scholarship, and uh, they would date that Matthew somewhere between A.D. 70 to 100. But there's several reasons to think that's not true. One is the early and the unanimous tradition. So we've got historical writings that say that the Gospel of Matthew was first. Um, Again, we've got that situation with Jerusalem being destroyed in A.D. 70. And Matthew mentions several existing landmarks, doesn't mention that they're destroyed, doesn't mention about Jesus' prophecy being fulfilled, so that also leads us to believe that that was uh, uh, written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Then we have the traditional, the historical uh, hints that there may have been an earlier version of Matthew in Hebrew. So it looks like. Um, Matthew later rewrote and relied heavily on Mark for uh, his uh, ri- writing in Greek. Um, and that puts us then the Greek version of Matthew being sometime in the 60s. Okay?
0: So Matthew and Luke uh, both relied heavily on Mark then.
1: Yes, yes. So um so you have you have essentially the the three similar gospels Matthew Mark and Luke being written in the early 60s roughly around the, the same time uh, potentially a much earlier version of Matthew and Hebrews written before say late 50s well sometime in the 50s we don't know when so that's the and then John came was the fourth gospel mm-hmm. so
0: so let let's talk about the most prolific writer of the New testament we're going to talk about paul he was probably the uh the most prolific missionary in the history of of the church having traveled so many t- so many miles and you know through the highways and byways and the stormy seas and shipwrecked yeah. and uh almost died a half a dozen times in his uh ventures and imprisoned many times and yeah. and so forth But uh, he was the most prolific uh, writer of the New Testament with the Pauline Epistles.
1: And he actually wrote the earliest parts of the Bible. People think that because, you know, the book of Matthew starts off the New Testament that that was the earliest book. So when they hear that it was maybe written around 60, they think back and they think, well, you know, Jesus was crucified around 30, that's 30 years later, you know, that's a long time. But... We actually, many, many parts of the Bible are much earlier than A.D. 60, and that's what we'll be looking at, the, the writings of Paul.
0: That's right, because in his letters, Paul mentioned several times uh, 14 years after his blinding experience by Christ, so that that puts him in the A.D. late 40s, mm-hmm. really.
1: Well, for one thing, uh, we he died uh, A.D. 64, 65, somewhere mm-hmm. around there during the... The persecution by Nero. So obviously his books weren't written later than that. They were written before that. Mm-hmm. Then we have this very interesting, what's called a date anchor. You know, it's a archaeologically confirmed, mentioned in the Bible, and this is from Acts chapter 18, verse 12, and it talks about that there was this proconsul of Achaea. His name was Gallio, and um, when Paul was there, the Jews made a, a united attack against Paul and brought him before uh, the judges, and Gallio was the proconsul then. Now, uh, we have an inscription found that precisely dates Gallio's reign to A.D. 51-52, mm-hmm. so there's this two-year time when he was the proconsul of Achaia, and that is... 10 points a time that we know what was happening in the Acts. So, yep. so working backward from there, that would then place the Jerusalem Council around A.D. 48. Then we've got Paul's second visit around A.D. 55, uh, I'm sorry, 45, 46, 47, somewhere in that time frame. Now this means that 14-year Time frame that you're talking about. You go back 14 years, you get Paul's conversion at around AD 31 to 33.
0: You know, the, the Delphi inscription, Keith, which is the anchor point that you're alluding to, this was a, a very, very famous inscription that wasn't found that, that long ago, no. really in the last century. Yep. In 1905, a graduate student found this uh, in a letter uh, from the emperor Claudius to Gallio, uh-huh. Okay, so this Delphi inscription then is a very, very important uh, historical fact that links Paul's um, presence, if you will, uh, in that in those years right around uh, AD 50, and that's how we can come to those benchmark dates. So uh, there you have it. I mean, this is this is part of the uh, the historicity of the New Testament and how we how we use those anchor dates, whether it's a uh, an archaeological dig or a a, uh, historical document, a letter, the Delphi inscription specifically is what we're talking about.
1: Right, right. Now, uh, this brings us to some really interesting uh, facts. Um, We're now at the earliest parts of the Bible. Mm. So since Paul became a Christian sometime around A.D. 31, 32, possibly as late as 33, and he goes into uh, ministry, and and we begin to see Paul's letters being written about 15 years later or so. That means that we've got a uh, text written down from within 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus, um, where it's written down. Now, what does he write down? Well, it's very interesting. He tells us something about what he was taught to believe when he became a new believer now that now you're you're going back 14 years before when he writes it down what did the early christians now and we're talking remember around year 31 32 what did the early christians teach paul when he was converted to christianity
0: that jesus existed
1: well we have it we have the verse mm-hmm. You can look it up yourself. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. And this was actually discovered, the fact that this is a creed was discovered by non-Christian biblical scholars who looked at the formula, the very specific way that it's written out. It copied the way Hebrew creeds were written out. And they noticed this uh, comparison and realize that this was actually a creed that Paul was recording, the creed he had to memorize as a Christian. So it tells us that Jesus existed. It tells us that Jesus died. It tells us that Jesus was buried. It tells us that he was raised from the dead. Uh, It tells us that he appeared to his followers in a glorified state. And it tells us that the Old Testament is the way to understand Jesus. So, as written in the scriptures, it says. And what were the scriptures in those days? They were the Old Testament.
0: So you're looking at all of the uh, prophecies that were actually predicting the uh, the presence of uh, the Messiah, and every, every uh, um, Hebrew woman was hoping that she would be the um, bearer of this Messiah so the Apostles Creed is then uh, summarized basically in 1st Corinthians 15
1: 3 through 8 right so this is really fascinating if you want to know what was the belief of the early Christians now we're talking all this is within one to three years of the death of Jesus now this allows absolutely no time for any legendary accretions to have formed you know there's you can't form a legend, um, you know, a legend doesn't get around that quickly. So the early Christians believed that Jesus had died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, and had appeared to them. So that, that is really fascinating.
0: And you know, Keith, we can actually delve into some of the other uh, uh, epistles um, from uh, Paul to look at other uh, creedal content. Uh, and I'm going to give you a, a list of uh, many of the uh, uh, scripture verses that uh, that we get uh, modern-day creeds from. Uh, and this includes First um, John chapter 4, verse 2, where um, Paul writes that Jesus is the only way. Um, we also have Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse verses 6 through 11, where uh, Paul talks about confessing with your mouth. And with your heart that Jesus was the Christ Um, uh, going on in this list there's 2nd Timothy 2 8 that Jesus was not only fully human but also fully divine Uh, and these are all things that that are really timeless uh, as far as Christian um, understanding and belief and faith Um, if you look at Romans 1 verses 3 to 3 uh, through 4 uh, that Jesus was betrayed and he was handed over uh, to the, um, uh, the Jewish authorities, uh, which ultimately went into his death and resurrection. Romans 10.9 talks about him uh, offering up his body and his blood at the Lord's Supper. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 uh, states that he rose from the dead for our justification. Um, going on, we have uh, 1 Timothy 6.13, that he appeared to Peter and to the other um, uh, disciples. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three that he ascended to glory. And finally, Luke 24, 34, that he gives life to all things. So
1: these these are all early creeds and portions of creeds that have been found in the New Testament that were taught as doctrine by the early church immediately after the resurrection of Jesus. So this is all a terrific evidence that um, the stories of Jesus did not come... From legend, they were not built up over time. The early Christians believed that immediately after. Well, what about the books that were not included in the canon? Um, really, there are no no other books were ever seriously considered. Uh, you know, there was this filter that they used to determine what the canon was, and this filter actually made it easier for a truly authoritative book to be rejected than it did for false writings to be included. Um, so it, it was hard to get in. There were actually some books that were useful and people thought were useful for teaching the apostles, teaching like the didache, and that was not made part of the Bible. So the, it's really more accurate to say the, bio, the books were recognized and not chosen. And, you know, I hope everyone realizes now that the New Testament was accurately written by authoritative sources. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks.
0: And I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis.
1: And if you'll join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m., we'll give you more reasons to believe. And always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.
0: Because you'll take me away